Welcome. This is James Corbett of The Corbett Report with your Sunday update from the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca for the 17th day of July 2011. And now for the real news. The world welcomed a new nation to the international community last week as South Sudan officially became its own country. Obtaining independence from Sudan on July 9th, the Republic of South Sudan became the 193rd member state of the United Nations in a General Assembly vote earlier this week, and Africa's first new country since Eritrea became an independent state in 1993. So far, coverage of the story in the Western establishment media has unproblematically portrayed the creation of South Sudan as the hard-won fruit of a valiant and spontaneous liberation movement among the southern, mainly Christian and animist population, who have been engaged in a decades-long struggle against the mostly Arab North, where embattled President Omar al-Bashir has been broadly criticized for his rule. He was indicted last year by the International Criminal Court for genocide in the Darfur region. However, critics and independent journalists note that Sudan has long been the victim of outside interference by Western powers with financial interests in the vast resource wealth of the region. They allege that mainstream Western press about South Sudan has gone out of its way to find human interest angles in the story that are conspicuously free of historical context or geopolitical analysis. Britain's Telegraph newspaper ran a story on Tuesday noting that South Sudan will be able to take part in the London 2012 Olympics, but face a race against time to do so under their own flag. The Daily Star out of Lebanon ran an entire article devoted to how a wildlife preserve hopes to attract more tourists now that the South is its own country. The Washington Times posted a feature story about Chicago Bulls forward Luol Deng traveling to South Sudan to host the country's first post-independence basketball clinic. The New York Times ran a lengthy report about South Sudan's independence celebrations, providing great detail about the festivities, the personal experiences of random Sudanese, and a lengthy list of the foreign dignitaries in attendance. But, as independent journalist Russ Baker notes in an essay criticizing such reporting, the Times does not even mention the question of South Sudan's primary resource until the 24th paragraph of their article, when they note, Negotiators have yet to agree on a formula to split the revenue from the South's oil fields, which have kept the economy of both Southern and Northern Sudan afloat. The effect of these reports are to downplay one of the central questions behind the decades-long strife in the region, and obscure what many are alleging is a history of Western interventionism in the name of the region's strategic, mineral, and economic interests. Only ever mentioned as a backdrop to the hostilities that have been the hallmark of the Sudan in recent years, oil accounts for between 70 and 90 percent of the region's exports. Sudan is the third largest oil producer in sub-Saharan Africa, and according to a 2008 BP Statistical Energy Survey, it, has pr- it had proven oil reserves of over 6.6 billion barrels at the end of 2007. Now, as much as 85% of those reserves are believed to lie in the newly created Republic of South Sudan, reserves whose fate are now in question as the region's treaties and agreements are rewritten by a new government. Throughout the 1990s, China has invested massively in the region's oil deposits, including the construction of a 1,000-kilometer-long pipeline to pump Sudanese oil to Chinese ships anchored in the Red Sea. By the time of separation, China had become Sudan's largest trading partner, buying 40% of Sudan's oil. But with the creation of the new government in the south, that looks set to change. The South Sudanese Central Bank has been formally cleared from the U.S. sanctions that prevent American businesses from dealing with the Sudanese Central Bank. Just this week, the new South Sudanese government announced that they have launched a joint venture with Glencore, the world's largest commodities trading company, to develop the country's vast oil wealth. 
As long-time observers of the region are now noting, these latest moves belie the fact that all of the Western attention on this region over the past decades, including economic, financial, military, and even humanitarian interest in Darfur, have been tied to the vast potential wealth of the country, and the creation of a new, Western-friendly government was the geopolitical endgame all along. To learn more about the story behind the story of the creation of South Sudan, the Corbett Report talked last week to Keith Herman Snow, a writer, photographer, humanitarian campaigner, and award-winning journalist who has been writing about Western interventionism in Sudan for several years. Well, to call South Sudan an independent nation is a little bit, uh, what should we say, erroneous. Um, it's an American protectorate. It's a British-American-Israeli protectorate at this point. It's run by the Christian right. It's run by the American intelligence uh, establishment and big corporations and some private military companies. For example, uh, Philippe, I believe his first name is Philippe Heilberg from Larch Capital. Larch Capital has uh, got some big investors. It's an investment firm, and they own at present, if you want to use the word own, they have acquired 400,000 hectares of land in South Sudan, which they will use for their mining, agricultural, corporate interests, uh, private operations. First thing to do is probably to kick the people off if they're not already being kicked off or have been kicked off through the war. In any case, large capital, uh, this guy, Philippe Heilberg, is a Wall Street investment banker. And uh, how did they come about owning or controlling 400,000 hectares? I mean, that's a pretty good size. It's the size of Vermont. In the region of South Sudan and Darfur is massive oil. And, and this is a very, very significant-sized country to begin with. And we're talking about an awful, awful lot of oil. And um, copper, uranium, gum Arabic is fundamental to South Sudan and Darfur. It's the best quality gum Arabic in the world. And the largest... Uh, proportion, I think it's over two-thirds of world supply is found in Sudan, and people ask, what is gum Arabic? Coca-Cola and Pepsi can't be made without gum Arabic. Coca-Cola got a special exemption. The United States uh, Pentagon, United States Department has had sanctions against the government of Sudan for many years because we've been participating in a war there, partly, but to prevent American corporations from having any investments or operations in Sudan. And the only, one of the only, not the only, but one of the only major corporations to be exempted from the sanctions was Coca-Cola because they needed their gum Arabic to come out of Sudan. And going back to the gum Arabic thing, many people eat or like Ben & Jerry's ice cream, which is supposedly, you know, this green company. Ben & Jerry's is owned by Unilever now, and Unilever gets its gum Arabic from Sudan. So those are just a few of the interests. The agricultural productivity of Sudan is fantastic. And so we're going to, you know, a lot of monocropping and a lot of big plantations being put in by agribusiness. And in order to get to this, there was a 20-year-long war that basically killed off millions and millions of people. Nothing, nothing as extreme as the Congo, but pretty extreme. Meaning in the Congo, we've seen 10 million dead in, in um, 14 years. And in uh, Sudan, it was around six, I think the numbers are six to seven million dead in 20 years. Allegations that foreign intervention in the Sudan was geared towards the establishment of a Western-friendly government in the region appear to be vindicated by development since the creation of the new state. During independence celebrations, South Sudanese revelers were seen to be carrying Israeli flags, a reflection of Israel's active support for the South in opposition to the Arab government in Khartoum throughout the period of civil strife. Israel has now officially recognized the government of South Sudan in its capital, Juba, 
and Juba has reciprocated by saying it wants to help Israel in forging a Middle East peace deal. The South Sudan government also launched its own currency this week, the South Sudanese pound, which was printed in Germany and flown into the country yesterday. As a testament to the willingness of the South Sudanese to subject themselves to the ec- economic subjugation of the Western-led international financial order, the government in Juba applied for IMF membership back in April, before it had even officially gained independence from Sudan, a country with which the IMF has historically had a rocky relationship. Now, as tensions flare up once again between Sudan and South Sudan over control of disputed oil-rich areas of the region which are still in a territorial grey zone, and as UN peacekeeping forces flood into the region to ostensibly make sure that those tensions do not fly out of control, look for the establishment media to continue to provide contextless, fact-free reporting on issues of no significance whatsoever, and to unwaveringly side with the Western-friendly South over the Chinese-friendly North in every dispute over resources. For more on this story and other breaking news and current events, please go to globalresearch.ca. For more research and analysis by James Corbett, please go to corbettreport.com.